like this is the Labor Day crowd, all the spiritual, holy people, or as I often say, the poor folk that don't have a lake house. But we'll go with the holy part, won't we? Um, Jesus, Jesus was asked one day by his disciples, they said, Lord, but you teach us how to pray. Now, there's conjecture about that because, uh, and there's some gap between the languages, but they actually said Jesus teaches to pray. There is a difference between saying Jesus teaches to pray and Jesus teaches how to pray. Jesus teaches to pray means that maybe we just don't really want to do it. Jesus teaches us how to pray. He says we want to pray, but we don't know how. Probably that's wordsmithing a little bit too much. Um, looking at the language, the disciples actually were probably asking something that a lot of Christians ask. I get asked all the time, what is prayer? And for those of us that have taken a journey theologically, one of the things that often suffers in our life is this issue of prayer. People don't know what to do with it. I grew up in a segment of the Pentecostal church called the faith movement that essentially, this is a bit of a, not on my ear. Oh, that's so funny. My headset's not on my ear. I knew that didn't sound right. That's great. Uh, appreciate the technology. They're flashing back there. Your headset is not on your ear. That reminds me of Brother Rutledge, my pastor friend in Pine Bluff, who his wife, we called her Pigeon, she used to send him notes while he was preaching. It was very disturbing to him. He told her one time, Sandy, he said, if you ever send me a note again, I'm going to read it right there on the spot. So she sent him up a note one night, and he said, Pidge, I told you. And he opened up and said, Marvin, your pants are unzipped. <laughs> so anytime I get a message from the back, I think about that. But Jesus teaches, probably they were saying, teach us how to pray. What's it mean to pray? And, of course, and why don't you say it with me? We can't say this together too often, the Lord's Prayer. And... Um, trying to think if I want to do the King James Version. We all grew up on the King James Version, didn't we? Our Father who art in heaven. Say it. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Deliver us from evil. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Jesus, if you look at those requests, Jesus, again, was responding to how do we pray. Jesus said, essentially, here are the things you ought to ask God. That's essentially what he was saying. Now think about that. Jesus was saying, these are the things that I think it would be right. These are the things that align you with the divine perspective. The first is, hallowed be thy name, recognizing the hallowedness of God. But then let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That would be fortuitous for earth for sure. Um, forgive us, or rather give us our daily bread. Again, fortuitous. Give us what we need in this day. But interestingly, Jesus said, when you pray and you ask God for things, ask God to forgive you as you forgive others. Now, that's interesting. All of my life, I've simply assumed that that was a doctrinal statement. And that's the way we've treated that, as a doctrinal statement, that God only forgives us as we forgive others. And you could argue that point, and there are other scriptures that maybe indicate that. But that's not what Jesus is doing here. 
Jesus is not teaching us about um, how God forgives. Jesus is teaching us how we ought to look out for our best interest in relation to forgiveness. And Jesus literally said, whenever you pray, ask God, now think about this, ask God to forgive you the way you forgive others. I don't think Jesus was holding our feet to the fire there as much as Jesus was saying, the reality is you don't want God to forgive you if you don't forgive others. In other words, you don't want to be that person who is graced and given mercy and love and yet doesn't give it themselves. Jesus said your worst nightmare would, to become, would be to become a selfish, entitled person that thinks everybody ought to forgive you and somehow you merit forgiveness, and yet after receiving all of that forgiveness, somehow become stingy with the same. Jesus said, do yourself a favor and ask God to only forgive you as you forgive others. Ask God to only love you as you love others. Ask God only to grant you grace and mercy as you grant it to others, because again, your worst nightmare would be to become that person who expects but doesn't give. Jesus told a story about a fella who was found in great debt to a king, and preachers for years, scholars have tried to figure out exactly how much money he owed. It was a ridiculous amount. It was millions of dollars, as best we can tell. And he went to the king, and the king said, I'm going to put you in prison until you pay to the uttermost farthing, and your family with you. And the guy begged him for the forgiveness of the debt. And the Bible says that the king granted him forgiveness. And you know the rest of the story. The Bible says he went out immediately, and he found a guy who owed him somewhere between 17 and $30 dollars. And he grabbed the guy by the collar and said, I'm going to put you in prison unless you pay me this debt. Ridiculous disparity between the two. And the Bible says the guy fell down on his knees and said, I can't. Would you please forgive it? And Jesus said, ridiculously, the man threw him in prison. So when Jesus said, when you pray, look out for yourself this way. Ask God to only forgive you as you forgive others lest you become that horrid person who expects but never gives. Thoughts on forgiveness, and then I'm going to go to a story in the Old Testament. These are just some of the disparate thoughts that I've collected through the years. Um, a lot of people uh, don't like political figures being quoted, but bottom line, if they say something good, I don't mind quoting them. One of the best things that I've heard in the last 10 years was something George Bush said in response to Islamophobia a few years ago. George, Bush, George W. Bush said, very often in our life, we are prone to judge others by the worst thing they've ever done and ourselves by the best intention we've ever had. Think about that. We're prone to judge others by the worst thing they've ever done and ourselves by the best intention that we've ever had. Anne Lamott said this about forgiveness. She said, not forgiving someone is like eating rat poison and hoping your enemy dies. Another statement that she made that perhaps was made before, forgiveness is the willingness to give up all hope of having had a different past. Acceptance, grieving, coming to a place where 
you realize that this is your past. It may not be the best one, but it's, it's yours, and it must be dealt with appropriately. Van Calhoun said something to me the other night that I thought was really profound. He said, the reality is when we judge others, there is an underlying assumption there. For me to put myself in the place of your judge, there is an implication, at least in my mind and heart, that if I were in your shoes, I wouldn't have done that. Think about that. The only way you can legitimately sit on that high horse of judging someone is the presupposition, you know what? They shouldn't have done that, and if I were in their shoes, I wouldn't have. But the reality is, the, the fallacy of that is, you can't be in their shoes. Because to be in their shoes doesn't mean simply to slip on their size nine loafers. To be in their shoes means that you've walked every step that they've ever taken. You've crossed every path that they've ever crossed. You've lived with their brain chemistry, their sociology, their parents, their circumstances. So the reality is, there's no way. If there is one who has ever gotten in our shoes, uh, he's the one that we sang about a few moments ago. And he was the one that asked people to drop the rocks and cast no judgment. When I think about enlightened people, I don't first think about ideas. I don't think about progressive versus conservative, traditional versus liberal. Um, not at all. The reality is I, I look for virtues in the life of people, and I do this subconsciously. But the most impressive people to me are not those who spout what I think are the best ideas. The most impressive people are people who live virtuously because virtues are the practical embodiment of good ideas. And when I watch people who think they're progressive in thought or have better thoughts than others, when I watch them act like an 11th grader walking into a third grade classroom mocking and condescending at third grade pedagogy and information, I think to myself, that's not enlightenment. But when I see somebody in spite of wherever they are politically or theologically, when I see someone who is charitably patient with others, when I see someone who's humble and grateful, when I see someone who is merciful, and not only merciful but loves mercy, this is a person that is practically embodying virtuously good ideas. And to not practically incarnate and flesh out good ideas virtuously is no enlightenment at all. I heard someone say the other day, to love someone is to apply charity to my interpretation of their actions. Think about it. To love someone is to apply charity always in my interpretation of their actions. Jesus hung on a cross and looked at his executioners and said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. What is that? That is the application of charity in the interpretation of another person's actions. Brene Brown calls this, and it's very much related to the idea of forgiveness, she calls this the generous assumption. Think about that. To generously assume that someone's motives, that they didn't wake up this morning trying to be wrong or trying to be evil or trying to be mean or trying to be stupid or trying to be averse or trying to hurt you, probably they woke up this morning trying to survive and trying to live the same way you do, but they share different ideas than perhaps you do. Enlightened people like Jesus were always about the business of applying charity and mercy to their interpretation of the actions of another person. That's why the wise man Solomon in Ecclesiastes said, with all of your getting, accumulate whatever you want to accumulate in this life, but with all of your getting, get understanding. Develop the capacity 
As Stephen Covey said in Seven Habits of a Highly Effective Person, develop the capacity, before you go to war with your enemy, find the place where they weep and watch them there. After watching them in the place of their sorrow and their pain and their humanity, you may not want to go to war with them anymore. Tichnot Han said, to love your enemy is to transform them because ultimately they are not your enemy once you love them. Socrates, when he was drinking the hemlock, looked at those who were with him. The reality is, historically, we know Socrates had enough people who could have overcome those who were forcing the hemlock on him. It was a ridiculous situation. He had more for him than detractors of him, and yet he chose to drink the hemlock. And when those who were with him asserted themselves, Socrates held them back from physically fighting those who were leading to his execution. Socrates ultimately whispered in his dying breath that these were not bad people, but they were simply people who lacked a better idea. With all of your getting, get understanding. The generous assumption. When King was knocked down, I believe, in Montgomery on the stage, I remember the picture of him. His face contorted, blood coming out of his mouth. It chipped a tooth. Uh, it, it bruised the left side of his face, but as he was knocked down by a man who attacked him, King, as he rolled over, he looked and he saw his attendants, the young men who were taking care of him. He saw them grabbing the fellow, and they were about to tear him limb to limb, and through his bloodied mouth, King screamed, do not hurt him, do not hurt him, do not hurt him. King, different than Malcolm X, but there will always be the Malcolm X reaction. When you suffer as much as that group of people suffered, there's going to be extreme versions. But King always called the white people who persecuted him and others, he always called them his sick brothers, his sick white brothers and sisters. The generous assumption. Judgment is my unwillingness to get in the shoes of the other to the extent that I can. It's my assumption that if I would have been in their shoes, man, I wouldn't have done that. Forgiveness. Forgiveness, the ability to look at another person and apply charity to them. Now, there are different levels of relationship that we have with people. I think the reality is Jesus called us to love everybody, and I think it's a well-ballyhooed text. Jesus said that if you only love your friends and people who treat you well, then he said you've done nothing more than just the immature religionists that he called the Pharisees. But he said if you really want to look like your Father in heaven, love your enemy. And to love means not to have a warm, fuzzy feeling, but to apply charity, to have a deep sense of compassion and caring for the well-being of another person. Jesus said, if you really want to look like God, look at those that might call you enemy and want the best for them. Want good for them. Deeply care for their well-being. We are called to love all people. And really that's a theological position. Ultimately for those of us that are in the Christian faith, if we need theological impetus and motivation to love other people, here it is. It's a theological base. Every human being is created in the image of God. 
Jesus declared that so profoundly in Matthew 25 when he said, there are marginalized people always among you. And just know this, whether it's whites or people of color or Latinos on the border or the LGBT community, whichever is the marginalized community that comes to the fore in culture at your time, they are giving you an incredible opportunity to approach God through the most ultimate of sacraments. Because the ultimate sacrament is not bread and wine. The ultimate sacrament is another human being, especially, Jesus said, suffering human beings. Human beings who are underserved. Human beings who are looked over. Human beings who are dehumanized. Kathy and Brian, on our trip, uh, the young girl that we've been taking care of the last couple of days, the CO that's here, the entire reason that our church is taking care of her right now is because we all watched her she was a CO, and we watched the way she treated the incarcerated men. She humanized them. Sometimes the most grievous thing you see in a prison is watching the staff dehumanize and reinforce the message of worthlessness to those who have been incarcerated. And in this one particular prison, Wrightsville, there was just this young CO, and she wasn't standing over with her arms crossed but as professional as she was in engaging with the men, she worshiped, she clapped, she wept. She was the only CO that I saw all week long take the Lord's Supper. And then afterward, as she was encouraging the men to go through the process of getting back, she was kind. And afterwards, I went to her and I asked her, I said, why do you treat the men the way you treat them? And she said, I don't know what you mean. And I said, I'm in prisons all the time, and there aren't many who treat them the way you treated them. And she smiled, and she said, because I'm this far from being one of them. She said, every person in my family is either incarcerated or dead from the streets, and somehow, by the grace of God, she said, Chrissy, I slipped through. She was a 35-year-old young woman. She has four children, three of whom are teenagers. The three teenagers she has had to assume responsibility for, Steve, from her other family members, the day before we got there, she had just, on 14.25 an hour, she had just taken a niece that she's been raising for the last four years whose mother and father are incarcerated. She had took that niece to University of Arkansas at Pine Bluff, got her settled in the dormitory, and has gone through the entire process and is making sure this young lady gets an education. But here was a girl who, when she looked out at the men and the women there at Wrightsville, she not only saw human beings, but she saw ones who were akin to her own family. But more than that, she saw ones who were not that much different than her. So perspective is that which Jesus calls us to. And Jesus said we should love everyone because in loving them, actually, we are loving God because Jesus said when you do take care, it's interesting. He didn't just say the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the naked, the sick. Those are the easiest. Ron Miller and I have talked about this a lot. Jesus called these the least of these, the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the naked, the sick. But Jesus said, I was in prison and you visited me. And it's interesting, he didn't say, I was in prison and I was innocent. I, I was in prison and I really didn't do it. He didn't parse out that he was one of the prisoners who shouldn't have been there. He said, straight up, I was in prison. And without equivocation, you visited me. Ron and I often call that sixth group, if the five are the least of these, then that sixth group is the least of the least of these. 
One of the things that Ron has often lamented and work, and we see all the time working with Timothy's gift and Chrissy, who's a chaplain down at uh, Murray County Jail, is it's one of the hardest missions to raise money for. Why is it so hard to raise money for prison ministry? Because somehow we look at those people and we think we are not like them. That if we would have been in their shoes, we wouldn't have ended up where they've ended up. And somehow they don't deserve the gratuity of our life. This, Jesus said, is not only a misunderstanding of them, it's a misunderstanding of God and it's a misunderstanding even of yourself. You have lost touch with yourself to even believe that. Jesus calls us to love everyone for in loving them, Jesus said, as much as you visited that one in prison, you were actually visiting me. The prisoner is the ultimate sacrament of God's presence. And then Jesus says, to love someone is to be willing to forgive them. And forgiveness is a tricky thing. Forgiveness means different things to different people, and I don't even know that there's a clear systematic on it in Scripture. Because there is a case to be made that forgiveness, forgiveness should be granted up front whether or not a person has owned their grievance or their crime or their wrong. There, there is a, an entire systematic that weaves itself through Scripture that says no matter what they do, if they never repent, if they never own their mistake, we need to give upfront grace to them and grant them forgiveness as though the debt never existed. There is another systematic in Scripture that says that is not a healthy case. That actually is codependency and enabling, that we should not forgive until a person has owned the grievance. Jesus told his disciples, if someone sins against you and they ask you to forgive them, forgive them. And if they do this 70 times, seven in one day, 490 times in one day, Jesus said, forgive them. But always the caveat, especially in Luke's gospel, is they have to first initiate repentance because if they don't initiate repentance to grant them forgiveness and act like nothing happened is enabling and it's codependent and you're reinforcing bad behavior. Maybe the most loving thing you can do, Jesus said, is exactly what Jesus does. Jesus said, except you repent, you'll perish. Why? Because you're continuing down a path of behavior that's going to destroy you. God doesn't have to punish people for sin. Sin has built in it its own punishment. So, Scholars are on both sides of that one, and I'm not really these days into technically parsing out legalistic interpretations of theology. I can intuit both. I think there is a need in my life to give upfront grace in relationships, and I think there is also a need in my life to be held accountable, and, and I don't want to be able to live poorly and to have people overlook that Mercy may not always be the thing. The willingness to let go of holding someone accountable may not be that which is most beneficial to me. So forgiveness is an interesting proposition. But one thing forgiveness doesn't do is it does not demand trust. Friends of mine a few years ago were often, um, I was thinking, Hannah, when you were talking to me about going back to work and you guys needing someone with your kids, I had friends that was in that, in that exact position and what a critical thing it is to get someone that's going to help you with your children, get them to school and be with them. My friends were in that spot. They hired someone they trusted, and yet no one is trusted fully with your children, so they set up cameras in the house. And I won't even tell you what they finally found, but they found quickly that this was not a person they could trust, Jason. 
the person was hateful and hurtful to their children. I walked that family through. This particular person who harmed their kids did get incarcerated for a time. I walked them through that entire process. And I'll never forget, after the circumstance, that person who I also knew called me one day and said, I would like, to, I would like for you to help me set up a meeting with these people. I remember thinking to myself, if I were those parents, but I want to meet with this person. And I watched them wrestle with, okay, God has called us to love this person. This person was imploring them for forgiveness. It wasn't to the degree of sexual abuse, and it wasn't great physical harm, but it was hatefulness. I watched this mom and dad wrestle with loving their enemy. And then this person was asking them, would you please forgive me of this debt that I owe you? And I watched them forgive but forgiveness does not imply trust because there's no way I think any of us would encourage them, even if they love them and forgive them, to trust them to watch their children again. And yet, as much as love doesn't demand forgiveness necessarily, love does provide the opportunity for forgiveness. And as much as forgiveness doesn't demand trust, forgiveness very well may offer the opportunity for trust to be rebuilt. And often we know in incarceration work that the willingness of a society to look at a person and say, I don't trust you now, but I believe that you are worthy of that opportunity. I am willing to go through a process, a relationship with you of regaining trust. There is nothing that humanizes and provides value to a person's soul more. Think about it in your own life. Because we are not only the ones who forgive, as much as we are the ones who forgive, we are also the ones who need forgiven. So interesting, when we hear a message about forgiveness, we immediately think about all those people we need to forgive. Well, what about all of those people who need to forgive us? Or maybe ironically and strangely, just everybody here tonight, we're the good ones who need to forgive. No, we are the ones that need to be forgiven as well. And when a person looks at you who you have harmed, and they say, I not only love you and I not only forgive you. We have found in working with incarcerated people, and Chrissy, you know this much more than I do. I remember the first couple of years that we went on these trips, we thought we were being magnanimous to tell them how much we loved them until we began to realize that they wanted something so much more than that. They wanted us to look at them and say that we believed in them that we believe that their humanity had not been eradicated by the things they had done, that the worst thing they had done did not measure who they could be ultimately. So we look out at them now and we not only say that we love you because something about that is charity, something about that is patronizing and condescending. It's like I love when I'm around town <laughs> because of the inclusion thing and because I've been a gadfly and also because I've been a jerk at times and made mistakes, but every now and then you run into people who really um, aren't too fond of you. And one of the favorite things I hear quite often is when people walk up to me, David, and they say, hey, I want you to know I still love you. And the I still love you. I is a good word. Love's a good word. You is a good word. But Glenn, that word still is so dripping with condescension. When somebody, Lo, good to see you, by the way. When somebody walks up to you and says, I want to tell you something, buddy. 
I still love you. You know what that means? That means in spite of what a jerk you are, because of how great I am, I still love you, buddy. To look at a group of men and women who are incarcerated and say, we still love you, is missing the point of the gospel. The real point of the gospel is to humanize them to the point that not only do I believe you can be forgiven, because this whole idea of being forgiven is only half of the gospel, the reality is we not only want to be forgiven, we want to be better. We want to be humanized. We want to somehow grow and actualize into all that maybe we haven't become yet. There's a story, and I just wanted to read a few verses here to you and give me five or ten minutes on this. The story goes something like this. There's a kid in the Old Testament by the name of Joseph, and at 17 years old, his father had so favored him above his ten older brothers that he gave him this coat of many colors and pretty much on all counts was always making sure that everyone knew that this was his favorite son. Um, one day, Joseph was out in the field with his brothers, and he told them, he said, hey guys, I, I, I got to tell you about this dream that I had. He tells them about the dream he had. Long story short, the dream implies that one day Joseph is going to be on the throne and his ten older brothers are going to be bowing down to him. He had two of those dreams. He was not a wise young man because this just fanned the flame of their already growing animosity and jealousy. So the story says that one day these ten older brothers were out in the field and they were tending the flocks and they saw their younger brother coming and the animosity had reached a fevered pitch and they looked at one another and they said, you know what we got to do? We got to kill him. It's a horrible story. Fratricide. The killing of a brother by brothers. And as they took him and put him in a well, literally tied him up and lowered him down into a dark, dank, damp well. The Bible said that 17-year-old kid sat down in the bowels of that well and he listened to his brothers around the perimeter of that well as they said to one another, you know, how are we going to off him and how are we going to get this past dad? One of the brothers had a bit of a fit of mercy, and that was the brother Judah, interestingly, from whom Jesus comes, the lion of the tribe of Judah, out of Judah's lineage. Judah steps in as intercessor and really doesn't want the kid killed, and Judah talks his brothers into, hey, there's no need to waste him. He's a commodity. Midianite slave traders come through here all the time. Let's sell the kid. Fortunately for Joseph, his brothers were greedy enough that they didn't want to miss an opportunity. They didn't want to waste a monetary opportunity. So they haul him out. Now, think about listening to your siblings have that conversation. It's the ultimate betrayal. They haul him out. They sell him to the Midianite slave traders, and they sell him for uh, 20 pieces of silver. It's very much the story that Jesus uh, and the Judas betrayal is built off of. So they sell him for these 20 pieces of silver. Now all of a sudden he's in a cage with other prisoners and he's being hauled off to Egypt to be sold on a slave block. And he's reaching his arms through the bars and he's screaming at Simeon and Levi and Judah and Issachar and Zebulun and all of his brothers, please, my God, please, thinking it's a bad joke. But it wasn't a bad joke and it wasn't April Fool's Day. He gets to Egypt He's sold into a governmental worker named Potiphar's house. Potiphar has him work for him. We really don't know how long. It could have been as much as nine years. Say from 17 to 26, he literally works as a slave 
for Potiphar in his home. The story is kind of scandalous because Potiphar's wife has the hots for Joseph, this nice-looking young Jewish uh, Middle Eastern kid, Palestinian kid, and she starts trying to lure him into her bed, and he refuses and refuses and refuses because of his conscience toward God and just wanting to be a good human being. Finally, one day, she gets so frustrated with him as he pushes her away and resists and said, I can't do this to God, myself, or Potiphar, who's been good to me. She screams, tears his garment off. He runs out of the room. When the servants rush in, she's standing there all unkempt and looking, you know, like she's been attacked. And she reports that Joseph has tried to accost her, to rape her. Potiphar does the only thing Potiphar can do. He believes his wife, and the kid ends up in jail. He's in prison for a couple of years, and after a couple of years in prison, through a series of events, he interprets some dreams for a butler and baker out of the Pharaoh's uh, palace, and word gets back to Pharaoh. Pharaoh has had a dream. He brings Joseph in. Joseph miraculously interprets the dream. It's a paranormal deal. And all of a sudden, in a whirlwind of events, this highly betrayed kid now is, let's see, he's 30, 13 years he's been suffering. And after 13 years of suffering, he now gets elevated to the vice presidency of Egypt. And the Bible tells us Egypt enters into a season of famine, and then after entering into a, going through a season, or rather a season of prosperous bounty, they go into a season of famine. The famine goes throughout all of the land. Long story short, I want to get to the text that's really meaningful here. But the famine extends all the way up into Palestine, and Palestine is where Joseph's brothers who betrayed him and his father and the family live. And the family is about 70 people. So the famine is so bad up there Jacob, Joseph's father, who was separated from his son now 22 years before. 22 years ago from this moment, those 10 brothers came back to their dad, and when their dad said, where's my boy, where's Joseph, they said, an animal must have killed him because here's his coat of many colors, and they stained it with animal blood. And the Bible said that old man Jacob held that garment to his chest and grieved himself almost to death. So for 22 years, he's been living, believing that his son Joseph was dead. And now, in a twist of providence, he looks at his ten boys who had done this dastardly deed to their brother and their father, and he says, I want you to go down to Egypt, and I want you to ask the viceroy, ask the second man there, if we could have grain, if we could buy grain from them. And that person that he's sending his sons to visit with and to ask for grain and to ask for help is the brother they betrayed. So the story goes that when they got there, 22 years had changed this 17-year-old boy who had spent you know, years in prison, years as a slave, but now sitting there uh, on that see 22 years later at the age of 39 his brothers don't recognize him but he recognizes them there's 10 of them he recognizes the names he recognizes the faces the resemblance and he realizes think about the pathos of that moment he's sitting in an elevated position of privilege and power 
And the 10 people who have hurt him most in life are standing in front of him vulnerable and prone. The Bible says that again and again in his first exchanges with them, he would have to slip out of the room and put a pillow over his face as he cried out, literally screamed muffled cries of anguish and pain. He fills their bags up with food. He sends them back to their homeland. He keeps one of the brothers, Simeon, and says, I'm keeping him here because I know you've got a younger brother. He found out that they had a younger brother who was his brother, Benjamin, born of Rachel, his mother. Only two of them were born of that woman. She was the one that Jacob loved most. That's why they were favored. When he hears he has a little brother that he's never seen, he keeps Simeon and he says, when you need more food, you've got to bring that younger brother back. The brothers looked at him and said, we'll never be able to bring that younger brother back because he's the son of a mother that was a mother to another child, and that child was lost. Can you imagine? They're talking to Joseph about Joseph. Joseph again goes out, buries his face in a pillow and cries. He comes back in and says, well, don't come back unless you bring that boy with you. They go home. They go through all of the food after about a year and they tell their father we've got to go get more but if we go we've got to take Benjamin and the old man says I'd rather starve to death here than risk this boy going down and never coming home the way Simeon has I already lost his brother Joseph I'm not going to lose him too the brother said you're going to lose him to starvation and all the children with him Jacob finally relented and the Bible said he grieved the way he grieved when Joseph had been taken from him 22 years before as he watched the brothers go with Benjamin. Bible says that when the brothers finally came into the presence of Joseph, not knowing it was Joseph, and they had that younger brother with him, as soon as Joseph saw these ten boys with that brother of his, that younger brother, again Joseph went out and he wept. He came back and he said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to fill up your bags and I want you to go home, but I'm going to keep your younger brother with me. The Bible tells us at that point, the ruse is up as Judah steps to the fore. Judah, who had interceded for Joseph before, steps in front of him with all the brothers in tow, and the brothers look at Joseph and say, our father has lost too much, and he's hurt too much. They did everything except say, we were the ones who betrayed him, and our brother, we caused all of this. But they intervened that day, and they said, we cannot let you keep our younger brother for it will kill our father, and he doesn't deserve any more pain. And they all stood there that day and said, keep us. And when they stood there that day, these brothers who had betrayed Joseph sore so selfishly, when they stood there that day and they said, you can keep us, we would rather die than our father hurt that way again. The Bible says at that moment, I just want to read this to you as we close. Then Joseph, and I, and I want to just read, and I just want to just highlight a few things, and over the next couple of weeks, we're going to really go into this and enumerate these things. But I want to tell you how you know that forgiveness is working in your heart toward another person. There are indications and there are signs, and this 3,500-year-old story, 3,000-year-old story indicates these signs better than any modern psychologist that I've ever read after. When Joseph heard his brothers say, 
that they would stand in the place of their younger brothers. Then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried out, make everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. I'll tell you how you know you've forgiven somebody. How forgiveness is working in you, you know that. Joseph is standing with people who have betrayed him sore, who he has to forgive, who he has to hold accountable. Joseph is about to reveal to them, I am Joseph. He's about to reveal to them their most dastardly deed. But before he does that, the Bible says he literally cried out, Everybody out! And no one stood by him when he revealed himself to them. You know you've forgiven when you don't want to include people who don't belong in the story in the story. You know you've forgiven. I'm going to tell you, you know you haven't forgiven when you want there to be a big crowd as the people are revealed in their humiliation. You know you haven't forgiven when you're talking to everybody else about the story except the person that you're responsible to talk to. You remember Jesus said, if your brother sins against you, go to him. We get that right about one out of ten times because most of the time when we're hurt, we go to everybody but the one who hurt us because we're not in the process of forgiveness at that point. We're in the process of retribution. Somebody's hurt me. I want them to hurt. But you know you're forgiven when you realize this is between you and this is between me. Everybody out and no one stands by you. That's exactly what Jesus did when he met the woman at the well. He sent the disciples into town to get food. They met her on the way. But the reason he sent them into town to get food isn't because he wanted food, because when they came back and said, here's the food we got, the Bible said, he said, I have meat to eat that you know not of to do the will of him who sent me. And he didn't even want the food. They're like, well, why did you send us into town to get food you didn't want? Because at a well, a few moments later, a woman looked at him and said, I'm thirsty and I'm hurting. And he said, you've been married five times and you're living with a guy. And she said, I know my life is a wreck. And he said, oh, sis, it's not sexual sin that's got you besought. It's that you have never drank from the right well. But I want to tell you something, Kelly. You can't have that exchange with a woman graciously if you've got 12 men looking over your shoulders. Because grace and forgiveness never humiliates. It never tries to make people feel small. It never extends. My, my mentor, L.H. Hardwick, always told me because he always dealt mercifully with people who had failed, with people who had gravely made mistakes. And some people even accused him of covering up sin. I remember Brother Hardwick told me one time, he said there's a difference between covering and covering up. Covering up is not to deal appropriately with that sin. It's to act like it didn't happen. But to cover it is to cover it in love, and that is to first acknowledge it. But here's the great line, Steve. He said, the correction should never be more public than the failure. If the correction, if the failure involved four people, the correction should never involve five because it's retribution that humiliates. It's retribution that wants to extend pain for pain. But forgiveness wants the humiliation to die just as the sin has died.
Joseph sent everybody out. Last one, and then we're going to take an offering and go home. I know it's Labor Day weekend. There's about nine more of these, and if I extrapolate it out, this would take two hours and 45 minutes, so it's going to turn into a series. Don't you hate it when a preacher says, I have four points tonight, and the first 27 minutes, they just get to the first one, and you're like, you can't even listen to them because you're like doing extrapolation, thinking this is going to be two hours. All right, watch this. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. You know you're forgiven when you don't want to humiliate. You know you're forgiven when you want the story to die. Second, and he wept aloud, and the Egyptians in the house of Pharaoh heard it, Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Upon revealing to them who he was, he had just exposed the greatest wrong they had ever done. There could be no more vulnerable, prone human beings than those ten brothers standing in front of the second most powerful man in Egypt knowing they had hurt him worse than a human being could be hurt. That's vulnerability. Twenty-two years, nine of those years probably, nine to ten of those years he was in a prison cell. All those years he would roll over on that cot, rats and cockroaches all around him, starving half to death. And he would think to himself in the dark night, one of these days I'm going to see those brothers of mine. He would fantasize about what it was going to be like to get them by the collar and say, it's me. He basted and broiled in his bitterness. But little by little, something happened in the heart of Joseph until on this day he looked at them and said, I am Joseph. And instead of saying, I am Joseph, what do you got to say for yourself now? I am Joseph. I mean, you you can just dramatize it. This Arnold Schwarzenegger, I am Joseph. I'm back. I'm Joseph. Hello, fellas. He had them. But you know that you're forgiven when you find yourself where Joseph found himself that day. All those years he had been thinking about what he was going to say to them, Gary. But now forgiveness has so worked in his heart that he looked at them and said, I am Joseph. And Logan, the first words out of his mouth after he revealed was these. Is dad still alive? I want to tell you how you know you've forgiven someone when the wound is no longer the major issue in your life. When the wound has so closed through the antibodies of grace and mercy and healing. Kathy, you and I talked about it on the trip. God, I don't know anybody in the room that has more to forgive than what you had to forgive. But you know it. When you can look at that person, when you can look at that event, a few years before this moment, they had brought a baby to Joseph, and they said, your wife had a baby. She wants you to name him. Joseph held that baby up, and he said, call him Manasseh, for the Lord has made me forget all the sorrow. The Lord has made me forget not the event. Jason, he said, the Lord's made me forget the sorrow. You see, divine forgetting is not the erasure of memory and the forgetting of the event. Divine forgiveness, divine forgetting is the ability to remember the event without feeling the sting of bitterness. 
And I love what he said, Dave. He didn't say, I've forgotten all the sorrow. He said, the Lord has made me forget because, Kathy, there are events that happen in life that are so beyond our human capacity to let go of that we have to roll over in the prison cell of pain and we have to say what Joseph said. You're going to have to do this in me because I can't. But there is a divine work of forgiveness that if we will open ourselves to it, to the one who said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. There is a work so profound that we will one day say with Joseph, call my life Manasseh, for the Lord has made me forget the sorrow. I have the ability to remember the events and the details without the sting of bitterness rising up in me. I am Joseph, and as they shook in their boots, a tear dripped off of his cheek, and he said, is dad still okay? It was great relief. They said, the old man's alive, and he smiled. You know you're forgiven when the wound is no longer the major story in your life. Isn't that a lovely text? There's about six or eight more of those we'll look at over the next few weeks. Let's close our eyes and just still our hearts. We'll receive the offering before we go home. And before we receive the offering, Matt, you guys come. Let's just, in these last few minutes, acknowledge that we need to be forgiven as much as we need to forgive. We are the ten brothers as much as we're Joseph, and we are Joseph as much as we are the ten brothers. May we find understanding and perspective through the eyes of the one we call Christ, May we open our hearts even now to a forgiveness and a forgetting that's bigger maybe than that which is humanly possible. May we open ourselves to the opportunity to say with Joseph, call my first child Ephraim, for God has made me prosper in the land of my adversity. In spite of the wound, my life has still been good. Call the second child Manasseh, because the Lord has done an even greater work. He's made me forget the sorrow. I'm past the pain paralyzing me now. Sweet Christ, we open ourselves to that work in us. May we be people who are not only forgiven, but may we be forgiving people. And so we conclude this message and these thoughts by praying, do us a favor, O God. Forgive us only as we forgive. For as much as we need to be forgiven, perhaps even more, we need to be forgiving. Teach us this, Lord, we pray in Christ's name. And God's people said, amen. God bless you.